Broadcasting live and direct from the rolling red hills on the outskirts of Kingston, Jamaica. From a magical place at the intersection of words, sound, and power. The red light is on. Your dial is set. The frequency in tune to the Rootsland podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. In the summer of 1991, my friend Brian convinced me it was the right time to move to Kingston, Jamaica. Maybe we were a little naive, but we thought we could change the world through our music. Brian was an aspiring singer, living in New Hope, Pennsylvania, with a sweet, soulful voice and a revolutionary spirit. I was a young songwriter from Long Island, New York, and when I met Brian, I realized I found my voice. We rented a large house in the hills overlooking Kingston, in an area called Armor Heights. Our place became an artistic sanctuary, where an eclectic mix of singers, musicians, and artists from all over the world would mingle with reggae stars and upcoming Jamaican talent. Tucked away in the hills of this lush uptown neighborhood, it was easy to forget that the flickering lights in the distance were coming from some of the most violent ghettos in the world. Ironically, it was in these same ghettos where Brian felt most comfortable. Right at home with the ragamuffin rude boys and disenfranchised street youth of Kingston, this golden-haired, golden-voiced singer from America gave them something they rarely experienced in their young lives. Respect and recognition. But Brian and I learned quickly that broken dreams line the streets of Kingston. I fell in love and stayed in Jamaica, started an independent record label. And as for my friend Brian, the one who inspired the journey and taught me so many lessons of life and music, he died of an overdose at a gas station in Boulder, Colorado in the winter of 1997. And while I know he's in a much better place, and as much as I would love to see his memory rest in peace, something was brought to my attention that has caused me to open up old wounds and stir up forgotten memories. This is the popular rock band Ween, introducing one of their songs before a live performance. Oh, well, this is called Reggae Junkie Jew by Ween. Uh, I was going out with this girl for about a year! One jar! And, uh, she left me for a reggae junkie Jew. And that's a white, uh, a white Matsafarian. That is a white dude with Golden dreadlocks. Who's addicted to heroin? And while I'm not here to judge the quality of any song or impede on an artist's right to express themselves, this is a song that degrades. It's a song that bullies. It's a song that shames. It's also a song about my friend Brian. And he deserves to be humanized. He deserves to be remembered how he lived his life not how he lost it. So the time has come for me to stand up for my friend, to tell his untold tale and reclaim his stolen legacy. Because when you look closely through the fragments of Brian's shattered dreams, you'll find they contain lessons of love, hope, and selflessness that are more relevant now than ever. In the reggae anthem Get Up, Stand Up, the wailers sing, not all that glitters is gold, 
half the story has never been told. Brian always dreamed he could make the world a better place. Maybe by me telling his story, he still can. My friend Lebo, he called it the perfect stoner cruise. You could light a joint as you were leaving my parking garage in Roslyn, Virginia, and take the last toke on Pennsylvania Avenue as you passed by the White House. Live Grateful Dead would play from the tape deck of my Nissan 200SX as the shimmering DC skyline would come into view. In 1987, I was a justice major at American University, lucky enough to be studying under the most respected political and legal minds in the country, in the most dynamic city in the world. On those restless nights, when my mind couldn't focus on school, I would take a drive and soak up the Washington, D.C. vibes. Even a steamy summer night couldn't keep the tourists and locals from crowding the streets and admiring what President Reagan referred to as a shining shining city city upon a hill. In his vision, he imagined a tall, tall, proud proud city city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living living in in harmony and and peace. peace. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with with the the will and the the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. I know I wasn't the only believer. On any given night, you could see idealistic Georgetown law students drinking Rolling Rock beers on the steps of the Jefferson Memorial, engaging in passionate legal debates. There were parents and children of all races, colors, and religions, mesmerized by the chisel-marbled features of Abraham Lincoln, and hushed silence as they read his powerful words engraved in stone. And sometimes, under the light of a summer moon, I would see the shadow of a lone figure hunched up against the granite rock at the Vietnam Veteran Memorial. And in a time before cell phone cameras and selfie sticks, they would be carefully tracing the name of their loved one with a pencil and paper. A moment so intimate, I would turn away to respect their privacy. It was a solemn night in the city, but a political hurricane had reached the shore, and D.C. was in the eye of the storm. As a justice student and political junkie, I was in the center of the eye. The scene was Washington, D.C. The cast was large. The Iran-Contra scandal transfixed Washington for most of 1987 and renewed a struggle as old as the Republic between the President and Congress. How can our system of government work if the administration is not candid in its answers to the Congress? I will tell you right now, counsel, and all the members here gathered, that I misled the Congress. This was my generation's Watergate, one of the most eye-opening and revealing political events of a lifetime. A real spy story that turned the front page of the Washington Post into a Jason Bourne thriller. A secret cabal involving the CIA, the military, private businessmen and politicians, even a sexy blonde secretary with an amazing 80s hairstyle and an unwavering loyalty to her boss. Um, Like I've said before, I believed in Colonel North and there was a, a very solid and very valid reason that he must have been doing this. And sometimes you have to go above the written law. Now myself and millions of Americans would see and hear the aftermath play out on our TVs and radios. An up-close view of our political system in action. 
the effectiveness of our congressional oversight, a chance for our elected leaders to step up and take an ethical and moral stance to uphold the credibility of our Constitution. And today we're going to talk about the United States Constitution. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. What we got? Nothing. Arrogance and grandstanding by politicians on both sides of the aisle? Nothing. Party over country? Ambition over Constitution? Sound bites with rehearsed spontaneity designed to play on the evening news? And before the gavel slammed to end the hearing, there was already one casualty of the Iran-Contra affair. My faith in democracy and my desire to devote my life to law and the justice system. Next business. You should thank God you got a chance to get away from this town full of dum-dums. We don't get food. I drove by the White House and worked my way down Pennsylvania Avenue. I had one more stop before heading home for the night. One last place where I could take refuge in this chaotic world. Take a ride to Tower Records. It's not just a destination. It's a real trip. Take the ride to Tower. Uh-oh. Can I help you? I remember my parents taking me to the record store in the mall when I was a kid. It was one of the very first places they would let me hang out alone while they went shopping. I felt so grown up, so free as I wandered the store, spending hours looking at album covers. What I found was my own musical identity. And when I became older, I would save my allowance all week and ride my bicycles Saturday morning to Ozrock Music on Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. There I would spend it all on Beatles records. I feel bad that future generations will never know the simple joy of walking into a record store and buying an album. The Tower Records in D.C. is on Pennsylvania Avenue in Foggy Bottom. It has two floors and a great selection of books, magazines, DVDs, video games, and of course music. The diverse D.C. crowd that shuffles in makes people watching just as entertaining as browsing the music. Students from all over the world, diplomats and their families, punk rockers and hip-hoppers, Of course, there were posers like me that hung around the jazz aisle, looking to impress the GW girls. It never really worked, but I did learn a lot about jazz. An announcement came over the speaker, the store would be closing in 20 minutes. I was in the world music department, in no rush to leave. I was reading the album credits on the back of a reggae CD. Produced by Dr. Dredd, Ross Records, Washington, DC. There's a record company based here in Washington. I thought, wait, there's a guy named Dr. Dredd producing reggae albums here in Washington? This was a sign. This was truly a sign. There was no Ross Records in the telephone book, but there was a real authentic sound in Maryland, right outside D.C. I spent all week trying to reach Dr. Dredd, but my messages were unreturned. Then I remembered my father telling me, if you ever want to reach someone important at a company, call on Friday after 5. So at 6 p.m. on Friday, I made the call. And guess what? Dr. Dredd answered. And when Dr. Dredd asked me why a justice student was interested in working for a reggae company, I answered, isn't reggae music all about equal rights and justice? I thought it was funny, but the phone was silent on the other end. And then he asked if I'm interested in coming in for an interview. 
Ross Records was located in a nondescript office warehouse park, about 25 minutes outside D.C., in the suburbs of Maryland. I don't know if it was by design, but if you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't find it. When I pulled up to the address, there was a large bay door open, and I could hear muted reggae music playing from inside. As I got closer, I could see there was a guy with thinning hair in an oversized sweatshirt, stuffing envelopes. I noticed he looked a little like the New York Mets manager, Joe Torre. I walked in with a little attitude. I'm here to see Dr. Dredd. He stood up and extended his arm and gave me a fist bump. I'm Dr. Dredd, Gary Himmelfarb. Nice to meet you. I'm not sure what I was expecting. Maybe a Rasta man in a smoky recording studio draped in reggae colors. But this was a very large warehouse, neatly arranged aisles of organized records, CDs, and DVDs. There was a stairway, which led up to a suite of offices. The whole operation looked professional and impressive. I liked Dr. Dredd immediately. First of all, any business owner that would spend Saturday morning stuffing envelopes was a real hustler, and I respected that. Also, he was very likable, and the more he spoke, the more I could relate to him. This is Dr. Dredd at his 2015 book launch. Well, I was born in Washington, D.C., and that's pretty much where I was raised. Unlike most people in the Washington suburbs who went to college because their parents wanted them to be doctors and lawyers, I got on an airplane and went to Columbia, South America. When I came back to America and someone played for me Catch a Fire by Bob Marley, You know, I was kind of getting political. And when I heard that Bob Marley record, his message and what he was talking about and being in the third world and seeing that, you know, the whole world wasn't the suburbs of Washington where I grew up and that, you know, people suffered. There was suffering. They had to struggle to get their daily bread and and the, the music and Bob's message It just completely resonated with how I felt. He was just a kid from the suburbs who grew up in a sheltered environment, but had a desire to explore the world and break out of his comfort zone. He was not going to be happy just observing life. He wanted to be part of it. So he decided to take a trip to Jamaica. Well, I think trip is the wrong word. It was a pilgrimage. And I was really getting interested in this culture that was coming out of Jamaica. Think about it. This small island in the Caribbean has given birth to Rastafari, which is a lifestyle that has gone around the whole world, even in China, everywhere. And it's not a religion. It's it's a way of living. And then reggae music, all from this little island in the Caribbean. I didn't decide to do this. It just happened. And, you know, Ross means real authentic sound. So I had made a commitment within myself to really bring the real, authentic, positive music of Jamaica to the world. You know, we do what we do day to day to make our lives work. But, you know, Ja has set a destiny for this brief time we inhabit you know, the skin, flesh, and bones that we're in. In fact, he had fulfilled his destiny, because by 1987, less than 10 years after starting out in the basement of his parents' house, Gary Himmelfarb, a.k.a. Dr. Dredd, had built one of the biggest independent record companies in the world. 
and the more I listened, the more I learned. As the conversation progressed, he asked me how I got into reggae. I smiled and said, Debbie Schwartz. My story also begins in the tropics. As a young teenager, my family would spend Christmas vacations in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where my uncle had an apartment. Sapphire Beach was an idyllic resort that sat on the east end of the island of St. Thomas. And Debbie's family, who is also from Long Island, had a place there. She was my first crush, and we really hit it off. But unfortunately for me, just as friends. And the only thing I enjoyed as much as hanging out with her was listening to the house reggae band as they played their nightly shows at the resort bar. I would literally sit on the edge of the stage and just watch the musicians play all night. They would begin with steel drums and a limbo show, starring a local girl named Jenny and her little brother Coochie. They would both shimmy under a flaming bar set on two Coca-Cola bottles. By the end of the night, kids went back to their rooms. The band kicked into pop music, reggae, and soul. I would refuse to leave until I heard the band play the same song I requested every night. It was a sweet reggae love song called Your House, and both the lyrics and music touched me in an inexplicable way. I was young, in love, and the combination of this song, the tropical ocean breeze, and beautiful Debbie Schwartz created a complicated mix of emotions that would leave me with chills up my spine. One morning during the vacation, my father took me and my brother snorkeling to a local public beach at Koki Point. It was the holidays and the beach was packed with locals, and there was barely any room for us to put our towels. We were the only tourists on the beach, and the atmosphere was festive and buzzing with energy. There was an uplifting vibe that made Sapphire Beach seem stuffy and boring. As I walked to the snack bar to get my drink of choice, a virgin strawberry daiquiri, I could hear a familiar song coming from a large boombox that was surrounded by a group of Rastas. It was the same song I requested every night from the band, and a tall skinny guy with long dreadlocks introduced himself as the Roots Man. That steel pulse from England, he said with a thick island accent. Then he offered to sell me the cassette for $5. It was hot, and I was thirsty. But I made the decision to spend my daiquiri money on that cassette, and it was the best $5 I spent in my life. Not only did it have music from Steel Pulse, but an array of reggae royalty, including Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, and Jimmy Cliff. When I looked at the label on the cassette, there was one word written in faded black magic marker. Rootsland. I looked at Dr. Dredd and told him that cassette was with me during love and heartbreak, tragedy and triumph before wearing out. And even after the tape was long gone, I still had the love for the music. I totally nailed the interview. And although I was reminded that getting hired for an unpaid internship is not the greatest accomplishment, I was pumped. Before I left, Dr. Dredd wanted to emphasize that one of my responsibilities was going to be answering phones and taking orders for their mail-order catalog, which is one of the biggest in the country. But all day long, we get calls on our toll-free line from fans not looking to place orders. They just love reggae and want to talk about music and life. We get a lot of calls from prisons where reggae is very big and people have a lot of time on their hands. We get calls from people going through all kinds of events in their life and reggae has touched them in miraculous ways and they just want to express it. There's a cancer survivor from Minnesota who says he was cured by Bob Marley. This guy in California who believes the CIA is out to destroy reggae. And of course, there's Brian from Colorado. And we appreciate their love and passion for the music, but we tell them to call back on our 301 line. That was the first time I heard the name Brian from Colorado. 
but it wouldn't be the last. <laughs> 